Thank you. Um, thank you, Peter, for that, that very nice introduction. And, and thank you all for inviting me uh, to return to Columbus uh, and for turning out uh, on a really lovely, surprisingly lovely March afternoon. Um, actually, walking back from lunch, uh, those of us who, uh, who had been in the group got a, quite a, a treat. We were able to see the first streaker of the, of the spring semester. Or I guess the spring quarter here. But, uh, well, <laughs> some of us got a <laughs> We're fast enough to, to get to, uh, to see it. But um, it's great to be back in Columbus uh, and to, to see so many people uh, working in uh, diplomatic or international history. Um, a thriving program indeed. Um, and I'm, I'm honored to be, to be here and to tell you a little bit about one aspect of my work. Um, what I'd like to do this afternoon is to present um, what I call a project in progress, uh, rather than a finished uh, or fully polished paper, um, to let you know one aspect uh, of my present work in the field of U.S. foreign relations. Um, and uh, without further ado, I'd like to put uh, up for your, for your viewing pleasure uh, the object uh, that I would like to talk about this afternoon, which is Queen Mary's copy. Uh, and half of it may look upside down, uh, but that's by design. Uh, her design, I should say. Um, when the RMS Queen Mary left Southampton on 15 March 1950, bound for New York, its cargo included a 12-panel gross point carpet, or tapestry, in an 18th century design of flowers and birds. This was not an ordinary run-of-the-mill carpet, though designed for a Tony townhouse in New York City or a Hudson Valley estate. Far from it. Each of its nearly one million stitches had been sewn by Her Majesty Queen Mary, widow of George V and mother of George VI. The Queen had begun the carpet in 1941 and worked on it almost daily for nine years. It followed her through forced exile to badminton in Gloucestershire, west of London during the Second World War, to holidays at Sandringham and the gardens she adored at her official London residence, Marlborough House, which currently houses the British government's Commonwealth Secretariat. Originally, the carpet was intended to grace one of the royal residences, perhaps Windsor Castle, and thereby join the royal family's other treasured heirlooms. Instead, it crossed the Atlantic and began a transcontinental tour throughout the United States and Canada. After exhibits in almost two dozen cities, the carpet was to be sold for dollars, which would be used to boost Britain's foreign exchange coffers at a time when the nation was experiencing a serious dollar crisis. In offering the carpet to Britain in this way, Queen Mary hoped to do her own small part to help her country in its time of need and to inspire others to do likewise. Twelve weeks of public exhibition of the carpet in American and Canadian cities generated large crowds and much public interest. But unfortunately, few bids, perhaps because the one stipulation on the carpet sale was that it find a home in a public institution or building rather than a private collection. Ultimately, the carpet was purchased by a patriotic Canadian women's organization, the Imperial Order Daughters of the Empire, IODE, which raised the necessary funds by sponsoring an extensive tour of the carpet throughout Canada. By the summer of 1951, the IODE's Queen Mary's Carpet Fund had reached the pledged amount of $100,000 through the admission fees and money raised from the sale of postcards and booklets about the carpet, as well as private donations from around the world. In October, the
the IODE presented the carpet to Her Royal Highness Princess Elizabeth, who in turn presented it to the National Gallery of Canada on behalf of the Canadian people. The carpet is today still held by the National Gallery and appears periodically on public display. It was last exhibited in 2001-2002 for the IODE's centennial celebration. The story of Queen Mary's carpet is not well known. I came upon reference to it while researching files in the British Public Record Office for a project on post-war Anglo-American conceptions of empire and was immediately intrigued by the questions it raised. What was the larger context for Queen Mary's donation of the carpet to the British government? And how did the gesture fit into the larger history of post-war British women's activism? What internal debates occurred within the British government over the disposition of the carpet? And what did those debates suggest about Britain's post-World War II domestic and international positions? Who were the women of the IODE? Why did they undertake their campaign to purchase the carpet for Canada? What did their efforts suggest about the evolving Anglo-Canadian post-war relationship and about the role of the Empire Commonwealth in constructing Canada's post-war national identity? This afternoon, I'd like to offer a preliminary exploration of these questions in an effort to bring at least an outline of this fascinating story to light. Despite its absence from historical accounts of the early post-war period, the story of Queen Mary's carpet deserves to be told, for it sheds light on a number of important historical issues and reminds the historian that sometimes the story of one simple object can open valuable windows for research, investigation, and discovery. Queen Mary's donation of her carpet to Great Britain is most effectively explored on a number of different levels. The first being her own personal connection to women's charitable work and the craft of needlework. Throughout her life, the Queen took a great interest in all women's work, particularly in the Queen Alexandra's Royal Naval Nursing Service and the Queen Alexandra's Royal Army Nursing Service, the women's industries, and the women's voluntary services. She was also known as the champion of British handicrafts, especially needlework. A longtime patron of the Royal School of Needlework, for years she personally presented its graduates with their diplomas. But she was also a skilled needleworker herself, storing her needles in an etui received as a wedding gift in 1893 and carrying her, her brocade sewing basket with her wherever she went. Her interest in gross point stemmed from 1932, and in 1948, six chair covers she had worked were privately purchased and then donated to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The carpet she presented to Britain during the dollar crisis was truly a magisterial piece, measuring 10 feet 2 inches by 6 feet 9 and a half inches and weighing around 113 pounds. Queen Mary personally selected and blended the 448 different colors evident in the carpet, and I, my eyes can't tell, but I guess there are 448 different colors in there. Uh, she embroidered the floral, floral border, and she signed each of the 12 panels with her cipher, Mary R., and the year in which the panel was completed. The first panel is dated 1941, and the border, 1950. A carpet of its quality and size would normally be expected to fetch 
around $3,000. So the Queen and the British government naturally hoped this one would sell for quite a bit more. The Queen's decision to donate the carpet to the nation should also be placed within the context of personal private contributions to the public good. What she herself described as every British citizen's duty to contribute something directly to help the nation achieve prosperity. The Queen's personal sacrifice in donating to the nation what amounted to nine years of work was a constant theme in publicity about the carpet, as was the point that at 83 years of age she was unlikely to complete another such work for her own enjoyment. The Queen's personal contribution to the nation was also highlighted in repeated references to the fact that she had made the carpet herself, that it had not come from the rich stores of the nation and was most definitely not a family heirloom. It was an individual contribution toward overcoming a national crisis. Publicity about the carpet sale also played up the Queen's long history of supporting charitable causes. Hospitals and other charities with which she was involved, in fact, had often received gifts of her own embroidery. So Queen Mary's carpet donation in 1950 was part of a long-term pattern that symbolized her personal determination to do something tangible to help her country over its financial crisis. And while she was under no illusion that her gesture would single-handedly solve Britain's dollar crisis, she was convinced that it could stimulate other British craftswomen to do likely. An early theme for the carpet campaign, in fact, was leadership to the people of Britain to work for prosperity. Self-sacrifice and community cooperation, it was maintained, would restore the nation's solvency much as they had helped to assure victory in the Second World War. Several women's organizations were deeply involved in the production and sale of the Queen's carpet, one of which, of course, was the Royal School of Needlework. Queen Mary, of course, was a patron of the school and supported its efforts to preserve the art of traditional British needlework. The school designed the 12 panels of the Queen's carpet based primarily on traditional designs in the Victoria and Albert Museum. It joined the individual panels together, and it attached the finished border. Its involvement in the Queen's Carpet Project and its close relationship with her in general should be seen as evidence of British women's involvement, not only in ensuring the survival of something distinctly British and something normally associated with women, but also their recognition that traditional women's pursuits could be used for larger national purposes. The idea that traditionally female activities could be used in service to the nation lay at the core of the other women's organization that played a major role in handling the details surrounding the sale of the carpet. That would be the Women's Voluntary Services, or WVS. WVS founded during the Blitz by Lady Stella Redding, originally undertook civil defense and other wartime tasks. Rather than disbanding at war's end, however, it refashioned itself as an all-purpose women's philanthropic and service society 
that allowed women of leisure an opportunity to make a positive and important contribution to Britain's post-war recovery. Among the WVS's divisions by the late 1940s was Women's Home Industry, WHI, which was devoted to producing high-end embroidery and needlework for export to the United States. The WHI had handled the earlier sale of chair covers the Queen had worked, a sale that generated $10,000 for the Queen's District Nursing Fund. Naturally, it was hoped that Queen Mary's carpet would generate a sum far in excess than that for the British Treasury. In addition to generating much-needed dollars for the British Exchequer, the carpet, like the chair covers made earlier by the Queen, was expected to generate U.S. interest in British needlework and thereby lead to additional sales of products manufactured under the auspices of the WHI. The carpet campaign also complemented ongoing British government efforts to encourage women to take jobs in the nation's textile mills, which were operating far below capacity due to a shortage of workers. Government officials saw Queen Mary's example as likely to spur ordinary women to volunteer for mill jobs in much the same way that they had accepted such work during the Second World War. Now, given its precarious financial position in the post-war period, the British government welcomed Queen Mary's offer to sell her carpet for dollars. Britain's dollar crisis was a nagging problem after World War II. One official described it as the Commonwealth's most urgent problem today. British ambassador to the United States, Sir Oliver Franks, concurred, asserting in the spring of 1950 that Britain's most pressing problem at the time was closing the dollar gap which he described for his fellow Britons as simply the gap which exists between the dollars we have to spend for food, raw materials, and machinery from North America and the dollars we earn. Obviously, one strategy for solving the dollar shortage was to increase British exports to dollar countries, especially the United States. And, of course, this was the thrust of the carpet campaign and its attendant drive to encourage textile production and exports in general. Another route to dollar acquisition was foreign borrowing, something the labor government of Clement Attlee had undertaken not long after the conclusion of the Second World War. In late 1945, the United States had agreed to loan Britain 3.7 million pounds. Intended to last until 1951, the money was unfortunately gone much earlier. And with little prospect of securing another U.S. loan, British policymakers by 1950 were increasingly determined to rely on self-help strategies, such as increased exports, to solve the nation's dollar crisis. Britain's post-war financial crisis and the difficult choices it forced upon British officials was part of the larger readjustment of Britain's world role that characterized the post-World War II era. Faced with limited resources that could not meet both international and domestic responsibilities, British officials sought early in the post-war period to reduce their foreign commitments, halting their support for anti-communist elements in Greece in the spring of 1947, for example, and deciding to grant independence to India. These financial considerations were still strong, if not stronger, in 1949 and 1950, when the question of Queen Mary's carpet came up. And it is easy to understand 
by British officials, in the words of one contemporary report, would have been very keen and excited at the prospect of boosting the nation's financial fortunes by selling the Queen's carpet for dollars. In keeping with this growing emphasis on national self-reliance and self-help, it is not surprising that officials in London saw the Queen's carpet as a symbol of Britain's steady determination to make good the losses of nearly six years of struggle on the front lines of the fight for freedom. As Ambassador Frank spelled out in his remarks at the March opening of the Smithsonian's carpet exhibition, this carpet is a symbol of our will to finish what we seek to do. Invoking memories of Britain's wartime struggle against the Axis, Franks proclaimed that the nation would not rest until this victory, too, is won. For Franks and other British officials, the Queen's carpet belied the nation's surrender to economic collapse or reliance on handouts from the United States. It painted in bold relief Britain's intention to retain economic prosperity through self-help and sacrifice, not charity or foreign assistance. And it was hoped that Americans viewing the carpet would come away with a greater understanding of the importance of purchasing British products. Now, from the start, the question of whether Canada would receive special consideration in the bidding for Queen Mary's carpet generated passionate arguments within the British government. Members of the Dollar Export Board, for example, argued strenuously that Canada should receive preference. So did the British High Commissioner in Ottawa, who maintained that Canada's deep loyalty and devotion to the Crown gave it prior claim to consideration. Moreover, giving Canada special consideration might fire the imagination of Canadians right through the country and serve as a prelude for further Canadian measures to assist in closing the dollar gap. Other voices, however, called for a truly free field and no favor, as representatives of the Board of Trade succinctly put their position. The Commonwealth Relations Office agreed, emphasizing that the overriding goal of raising the maximum amount of dollars dictated an open and competitive bidding process. Surprisingly to some within the British government, the Canadian government also pushed for open bidding and declined to press for special consideration. Although it was deeply interested in securing the carpet, it also astutely observed that it was in the United States rather than Canada where goodwill toward Britain needed to be built up. Canadian Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent also predicted that despite the Canadian people's desire to secure the carpet for their country, he did not think there would be adverse repercussions if United States bids proved to be higher an eventuality he and others believed to be highly likely. Although Queen Mary was described as frightfully anxious to get the maximum amount of dollars from the sale of her carpet, the instructions given to the committee charged with considering the bids and choosing a winner reveal less concern with maximizing the financial gain from the carpet than with controlling where it ended up. The committee was comprised of Mr. Cameron F. Cobbold, the Governor of the Bank of England, Sir Cecil Weir, Chairman of the Dollar Export Board, and Lady Stella Redding, 
head of women's voluntary services. Each bid's size was to be a major factor in the committee's deliberations, but it was not likely to be the only consideration. Also important, and perhaps in the end more important, was the matter of the carpet's ultimate destination. The admission, at least in documents intended for internal British government consumption, that maximizing the financial return from the sale of the carpet was not the most important consideration, makes clear that from the outset the bidding process was weighted away from simple financial calculations and toward non-measurable factors like sentiment and emotion. In the end, the best bid would be selected, not the highest one. As the debate within the British government illustrates, Queen Mary's carpet may be seen as a vehicle for understanding the evolving Anglo-Canadian and Anglo-American relationships. The desire of British officials to ensure that Canada was treated on par with the United States in the bidding process illustrates not only sentimental ties to the Dominion, but also the recognition that Canada had much to offer its former imperial ruler. Canada had contributed significantly to Britain's war effort, primarily through the export of critical armaments and other war material. After the war, Canada had issued a loan of $1.25 million to Britain, a gesture that British officials sorely appreciated and one that historian Alfred F. Haberhurst notes ruefully was much more generous than the U.S. loan considering that Canada's national income was one-twentieth that of the United States. Although the United States was recognized as likely to tender a higher offer for the carpet, some officials seemed reluctant to admit that yet again Britain might have to accept U.S. assistance, this time through the purchase of the Queen's carpet. Others simply seemed emotionally opposed to seeing the carpet end up in the United States as a matter of principle. When viewed within the larger context of Britain's post-war situation, Queen Mary's carpet becomes a useful lens through which to comprehend the many strands that came together to constitute the post-war British reality. Between 23 March and 15 June 1950, Queen Mary's carpet crisscrossed the United States and Canada. Arrangements for the tour were handled by Colonel Angus MacDonnell of the British Information Services, and Miss Patricia Hardy of the Women's Voluntary Services. Under their supervision, the carpet visited in turn New York, Ottawa, Washington, D.C., St. Louis, Kansas City, New Orleans, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Minneapolis, Detroit, Toronto, Boston, Quebec, Montreal, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and then back to New York, and there'll be a quiz. Ultimately, the carpet traveled some 11,000 miles and was viewed by 350,000 people. The tour was truly a public relations success, generating significant public interest, and it was hoped educating the American people about Britain's ongoing dollar drive and the importance of American purchases of British products and generally stimulating goodwill in the United States toward Britain. 
Since only six of the almost two dozen cities on the North American tour were in Canada, it was clear that the carpet tour's goodwill potential was primarily aimed at the United States. The U.S. public did not disappoint, coming out in droves to see the carpet and responding enthusiastically wherever it went. Reports of the tour sent back to the WVS office in London practically gushed about the large crowds that turned out in city after city to view the carpet. British officials, in fact, seemed somewhat taken aback by the size of the U.S. crowds. We could have expected as enthusiastic a reception in Canada, one tour report intoned, but not in the United States. The reasons for the large crowds in the U.S. cities on the tour were manyfold. Some people felt compelled to view the carpet due to their sympathetic interest in the British royal family. Others simply appreciated the beauty of the work itself. Not surprisingly, many of those who viewed the carpet were of British ancestry. And many of those were, were British war brides who welcomed the chance to reconnect with their beloved queen. Some American women were moved by the queen's personal sacrifice in making and donating the carpet to her nation and many noted their belief that Queen Mary had set an example of service for American women too. They were also impressed with the example the Queen had provided in sticking to her job and finishing what she started. Due to the regulations governing the museums in which the carpet was displayed, it was not possible to generate revenue from admissions fees. And the British government thus lost what had earlier been hoped would be a substantial sum. More than 100,000 people had viewed the carpet for a fee during a four-week exhibition at London's Victoria and Albert Museum before it departed for the United States, and British officials had hoped to add considerably to the sum thereby raised through paid admissions in North America. Revenue from brisk sales of postcards, informational brochures, and commemorative booklets more than covered the cost of mounting the carpet tour, but left very little for transfer to the exchequer. With the financial return from the North American tour of the carpet not quite what British officials had hoped for, a high selling price for the carpet became all the more important. But hopes to offset the low return from the exhibition with a heated contest for bids and a mammoth final price were ultimately dashed. By mid-May, almost two months into the carpet's original tour, no bids of any consequence had yet been tendered. Rumors of impending bids by prominent Americans abounded. So did claims that a bid for $1 million had been submitted early in the bidding process. Neither was true, unfortunately, although privately British officials had expressed their good hopes that the carpet could sell for $1 million. With a week to go before the announced deadline for bids of 15 June, response was still what the British government described as poor, and publicity efforts were undertaken to convince individuals, firms, or organizations that the bidding was still very much open. When the day of decision arrived, the adjudication committee first excluded from the hundreds of bids that actually were submitted uh, those it considered frivolous or otherwise unsuitable. Uh, such as the one from a Canadian woman who asked for the carpet on approval first. It then whittled the remaining offers down to seven, four from the United States and three from Canada. 
From those seven, it selected the bid of the International Order Daughters of the Empire, which intended to establish a public fund to raise $100,000 with which to purchase the carpet on behalf of the people of Canada. In selecting the IODE's bid, the selection committee admitted that, although not the highest, it was the most acceptable. Clearly, the intimation during early discussions of the carpet's disposition that a bid's size was not the most important consideration proved true. And in the end, other factors, such as the carpet's ultimate destination, did indeed prove decisive. The Imperial Order, Daughters of the Empire, was involved with the carpet project almost from its inception. Members in the six Canadian cities included in the original North American tour assisted with local details and handled the on-site sale of postcards and publicity material. They also arranged for local showings of a 10-minute informational film about the carpet produced by the British government. In fact, the order absorbed the cost of producing additional prints of the film so that one copy could be available in each Canadian province, something the cash-starved British government was unable to afford on its own. The IODE had also considered from the beginning the possibility of sponsoring a fund to be raised in Canada to purchase the carpet, but was dissuaded from doing so by the British Carpet Committee, which seemed at first reluctant to accept funds by public contribution that were sponsored by any one organization. Given the unsuitability of the original bids, however, the official position on funds sponsored by any one organization was reversed, and the IODE was apparently approached by British representatives from various quarters about sponsoring a public fund to purchase the carpet for Canada. After contacting the British Committee in charge of the carpet sale directly, the IODE submitted its successful $100,000 purchase offer. Members were naturally delighted when they learned that their bid had been selected, but they did regret that the transatlantic time difference gave them little time to spread the word themselves before the late afternoon announcement was made in London on 27 June. They were also elated by Her Majesty Queen Mary's reaction at the news that her carpet was going to Canada. In a personal letter to Mrs. John H. Chipman, national president of the IODE, the Queen asserted that nothing had given her greater pleasure than to learn that the carpet had become the property of the Canadian people. The Queen's claim that she had always cherished the hope that it might eventually find a home in Canada also adds further fuel to the argument that the bidding process was weighted ultimately in ways that gave Canada a leg up. Officers of the order went to New York on 19 July and took possession of the carpet from the British Vice Consul. And thus the stage was set for the carpet's second tour. Only this time it would go exclusively to Canadian cities, and this time people would be charged a fee to view it. For the IODE's officers sought to raise their pledge amount of $100,000 as quickly as possible so that the carpet could become the property of Canada and be placed on permanent display in the National Gallery in Ottawa. The purchase of Queen Mary's carpet for Canada was a gesture perfectly in keeping with the purposes of the IODE. Founded during the Boer War as a means of solidifying ties between the Dominion of Canada and Great Britain, the order had emerged in the following decades as an important women's philanthropic and patriotic organization. It raised funds to construct memorials for both world wars, 
sponsored the construction and maintenance of Canadian war graves abroad, supported Canadian soldiers, assisted British civilians during and after the Second World War, and awarded scholarships for the study of British and imperial history. Given that its first stated goal was to stimulate and give expression to the sentiment of patriotism which binds women and children of the empire around the throne and the purchase person of their gracious and beloved sovereign, it was no wonder that the order was interested in securing the Queen's carpet for Canada. In fact, Queen Mary herself was an honorary member of the order's Princess of Wales chapter in Kitchener, Ontario, a chapter that was named for her when she held that position herself. Her brother, Prince Alexander of Teck, had served as Governor General of Canada from 1940 to 1946, and she herself had visited Canada in 1901 with the future George V when they were the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and York. These personal ties bound Queen Mary to Canada even more closely than other British monarchs and fired the IODE's determination first to secure her carpet for Canada and then to raise the pledged amount as quickly as possible. Public reaction to the Canadian tour of the carpet was wildly enthusiastic. The national IODE officers assigned to shepherd the carpet from city to city reported large crowds and positive public reactions wherever they went. Their first stop in late August and early September was the Canadian National Exposition in Toronto, where the carpet was viewed by more than 95,000 people over the course of two weeks. The CNE portion of the carpet tour alone netted more than $24,000. Thereafter, the IODE organized a series of regional tours that took the carpet to all sections of the nation. Cities were selected for the tour based on minimum populations, and they had to have a minimum population of 20,000. The IODE felt that this was a necessary criterion because they had to make sure that sufficient people would be viewing the carpet in order to offset the costs of mounting the tour. The Western, Maritime, Eastern, and Ontario tours drew large crowds, as did displays of the carpet staged in IODE chapters in the Bahamas and Bermuda. Unlike the North American tour, which had exhibited the carpet exclusively in museums, the Canadian tour made use of a variety of venues, from department stores to YMCA's to local arboreties and auditoriums. It was clear from the beginning of the Canadian tour that the IODE hoped to attract as many children and adolescents to view the carpet as possible. The admission fee for children was only 10 cents, compared to the 25 cents charged to adults. Moreover, the admission fee for school groups accompanied by teachers was waived entirely, and eventually 72,000 young Canadians viewed the carpet as part of school-sponsored excursions. By 1952, thousands had also received complimentary copies of the informational story of the carpet, produced by the British government and sold during the tour to, say, to raise money. It seems that so many copies of the brochure remained after the conclusion of the tour that distributing them to schools solved the problem of paying to have them stored and had the added benefit of putting the brochures to good use among youngsters. These efforts to expose school-aged children to the carpet clearly suggest the IODE's Canadian tour was intended to do much more than simply raise the $100,000 that the order had pledged 
to purchase the carpet. It was also designed to foster an emotional attachment to Britain among young Canadians. A goal that squared perfectly with the organization's purposes since its founding early in the 20th century. The balance of the IODE's Queen Mary Carpet Fund mounted steadily in the autumn of 1950 on as the proceeds from admissions fees and literature sales added up. IODE representatives kept excruciating details about the tour in each city, keeping records of how many people viewed the carpet in each city, including how many adults, how many children, and how many children in school groups comprised each city's total. Although officers were generally pleased with the response the carpet generated, by April 1951, the fund was still almost $20,000 short of its goal. Anxious to complete the fundraising as quickly as possible, the national president appealed directly to the IODE membership through the pages of the order's journal, Echoes. In a piece titled, Let's Finish the Job, she exhorted each individual member to make a donation, nothing is too small, or to make herself responsible for collecting contributions from her friends and relatives. And each local IODE chapter was asked to consider making a contribution to the carpet front from its own local treasury surplus. Unless members somehow missed the printed plea, the national office requested that provincial presidents issue a direct request for contributions at their local annual meetings. Thanks to a final push throughout the late spring and early summer, the carpet fund went over the top in late June, 10 months after the carpet had begun its Canadian tour and one year after the IODE had been notified that its purchase offer had been selected. More than 250,000 people viewed the carpet on its Canadian tour. Their admission fees and souvenir purchases were augmented with many personal contributions, some of them quite large, such as the $2,500 contribution from a very elderly gentleman in Quebec to meet the $100,000 needed to purchase the carpet for Canada. The IODE sent final payment for the carpet, $102,330.47, to the conservative government of Winston Churchill in the fall of 1951. The sterling equivalent was 32,500 pounds. Admittedly, a drop in the bucket considering the nation's overall dollar gap, but an important and positive step down the road to national self-help and economic recovery. Final disposition of Queen Mary's carpet took place in October 1951, when Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip participated in a ceremony marking the official presentation of the carpet to Canada. After accepting possession of the carpet from IODE National President Helen Chipman, the princess then presented it on behalf of the nation to the head of the Board of Trustees of the National Gallery, Vincent Massey. In a brief but well-crafted speech, the princess highlighted Queen Mary's personal connections to Canada and her delight that Ottawa was to be the final home for her work. The future queen also expressed her own pleasure that the carpet would rest in Canada, where it would be valued not only as a work of art, but as a personal link with her father's house and her gratitude that the IODE had undertaken to secure the carpet for Canada. The IODE could not have scripted a better or more succinct explanation for its carpet campaign than the princess's words that October afternoon. 
As an organization founded in large part to foster ties between Canada and the British monarchy, the IODE jumped at the chance to purchase the Queen's Carpet for Canada, viewing it as perhaps the perfect expression of its stated goals. But by sponsoring a nationwide fund to purchase the carpet, the IODE had provided a vehicle for hundreds of thousands of Canadians to solidify their own ties to Britain as well. In viewing the carpet on its tour across the nation, in following the progress of the carpet fund in the newspapers, and in listening to or viewing the October 1951 ceremony in which the carpet was presented to the nation, Canadians affirmed their affection for Britain and especially for the monarchy. The hundreds of thousands who paid to see the carpet, purchased souvenir material, or simply contributed to the carpet fund also followed Queen Mary's example of individual assistance to a nation in need. Some hints of the carpet's potential positive effect on Anglo-Canadian relations had come during the original North American tour, when one proud Canadian woman had issued a plea that as many Canadians as possible should be given the opportunity of seeing it. In her words, the carpet was one of the first tangible ties with England and the throne that Canadians have had for some time and something so essentially belonging to the empire that it could truly play a positive role in forging closer ties between Britain and Canada. The leadership of the IODE would certainly have agreed. They were much gratified at the successful conclusion of the carpet campaign, especially because it came as a result of the massive mobilization of the Canadian people. Their satisfaction was likely heightened by the fact that the acquisition of the carpet coincided with the order's golden jubilee. At a time when words such as empire and imperial were fast falling out of popular favor, the IODE could point with pride to Canada's support for the purchase of Queen Mary's carpet as proof that the bonds of empire between Canada and Britain were still very much tied. Perhaps no other act or gesture could have better illustrated the order's raison d'etre or confirmed its members' convictions that the organization still had a role to play even as the British Empire contracted and devolved around them. At first glance, the story of Queen Mary's carpet might seem to merit only a footnote in the history books, and believe me, it has rarely merited even that especially when measured against the truly momentous developments of the post-World War II period. As I hope this brief sketch has made clear, to so consign the story of the carpet would be an error. For upon proper historical consideration, it provides useful insights into some of those momentous developments, such as Britain's post-war financial crisis, the evolving Anglo-American relationship, and the shifting patterns of Anglo-Canadian relations. It also sheds light on post-war women's activism in both Britain and Canada and on the construction of post-war Canadian identity. Beyond its contributions to post-war history, I believe that the carpet tale also provides a useful reminder to historians that seemingly insignificant stories can often generate significant returns. Thank you very much, and I would 